0: Wonderful to hear the Word of God in the song and to read the Word of God, to speak it aloud as well. And so welcome to Monday Chapel, God's house for worship today as we hear and respond to God's Word. Uh, we have two weeks left of school, and there is nobody happier about that than the man speaking to you right now. Uh Uh, Today, uh, we think also of uh, the beginning of our school year, the fall term, where we uh, were introduced to a theme verse, uh, and you see it on the banner, of course, also Matthew 5, 14, 16, you're the light of the world, and uh, if you're anything like me, and I know that fellow faculty is, because we're riddled with all kinds of terms about assessment, we're going to close the loop over the next couple of weeks, all right? Closing the loop means that we take something that we learned at the very beginning and think about what we've learned at the very end. So we're going to close the loop in chapel for this Monday and for Monday, the 20th of April as well, and think closely about these theme verses that we've heard uh, in in song and throughout the scriptures and studied throughout these past couple of terms, and uh, we have two Mondays to do so. So first things, And to get to what these first things in Matthew 5, 14, 15, 16 are about, there's another first thing, and that's that these words that Jesus preaches to the people who are seated at the mount are really about Jesus first, and then they become about you and me. And all the people who hear Jesus' words, they're about Jesus first, and then they become about you and me. So this week, We're going to talk about how Jesus is the light of the world. And you'll have to come back next week for the you are the light of the world bit. So let's start with Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. You have it on your cell phones. You have it on your tablets. You have it in Bibles. There's paper and ink in the Bibles that are in front of you. And I would invite you, please, to turn to Matthew chapter 5, 14 to 16. Keep this open for a little bit so we have some context. It's on page 810. You'll find it in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 to 16. And what do we hear? Let's uh, read it together, this English Standard Version translation of the Scriptures about light of the world, starting at verse 14. Let's read it together. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love these verses. Uh, that, That last word of the first verse, a city on a hill cannot be hidden, is the first clue that we're really talking about somebody that can't be hidden. And it's not just you or me or any of the audience that Jesus is speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's Christ himself. That hidden word is uh, uh, associated with a Greek stem that, uh, when derived into English, gives us our word crypt. You know, C-R-Y-P-T, the crypt. And of course, we've been thinking about death, and life, the suffering, passion, death of Christ, and his glorious resurrection as we are here in the Easter season. As the seasons change and we get lighter and lighter in chapel, as the sun starts to come in more and more, we also are thinking about the light of the world who is no longer hidden in the crypt. He's no longer hidden in the grave, but he has arisen in a glorious resurrection The context of these verses, though, is important also to think about, as we think about who Jesus is talking about at the beginning of this sermon and throughout. And so listen to some of these verses and look in your scriptures a a little bit before and a little bit after these glorious verses in Matthew chapter 5. You see that Matthew chapter 5 begins with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And these are the last kinds of people that you'd expect to be blessed. You see this bit about the salt in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. If salt loses its saltiness, how can it be restored? I'd like to ask any chemistry professor or any chemistry major, can salt ever lose its saltiness? This is pointing to the impossibility that Jesus is expressing and being able to follow in the way of his commands. The impossibility that we all face when we look also at the rest of the context of Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 17. Take a look at these verses there in your scriptures. What does Jesus say? Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota. Not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. This doesn't sound like good news. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That proves it. That's not good news. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the gospel of the Lord. How many can say that their righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, at least when we're talking about this horizontal level, the the idea of human righteousness? I know that my actions don't look all that righteous compared to other people, compared to yours, for example, and especially compared to the Pharisees and scribes that Jesus is thinking about. The point with this is the impossibility of following God's commands. And I would offer this simple thesis, that that's the context of the entire sermon that Jesus is preaching here. The kingdom of God is something unattainable by our own human efforts, dear friends in Christ. And what Jesus is really doing with this sermon on the mountain is defining the boundaries for a new kingdom Not a kingdom in the way that we think about it. Not the kingdom of this world that we live in temporally, day after day. You know what that kingdom looks like. That's where the first are the first, and the last stay last. Where the greatest are always the greatest, and the least stay least. Where the rich get richer, and the poor stay poor. That's how it goes. The kingdom of, of God is defined in Jesus' preaching as that kingdom which is opposed to this world. This temporal kingdom. Where first. And the kingdom of God that Jesus preaches is also opposed to the kingdom that we create in our own heads about theology, about how God works, about how things are supposed to be for those who believe in God. A human theology, in other words, where we might think that we're getting better, we're getting brighter, we're getting holier, we're getting lighter you got to admit, it's getting better. Better every day. It can't get much worse. right? Jesus says that's not the kind of theology we deal with. We're not dealing with death and life on a spectrum. We're not dealing with shades of gray, 50 or less or more. We're dealing with light or darkness and no in-between. Life and death and no in-between. Truth and lies, and there are no other options. Mm. And if that's the case, Jesus is pointing out himself first when he's talking about a city on a hill that cannot be hidden even by a crypt. He's talking about himself first as the light. He's the salt who once was trampled and has retained in a glorious resurrection his sodium and potassium content. And Matthew's point with this is matched by the testimony that we hear throughout the rest of the New Testament. And so I invite you to turn with me to some other texts on this. And we're going to look at 1 John. We're going to look at the Gospel of John. And I'm going to split this up. We're going to read a little bit. I'd like uh, this group particularly to be reading something from 1 John. This group particularly to be reading from 1 John and the middle section to be reading from the Gospel of John. But you can look all of these up together. Uh, the first verse that I want to take a look at is 1 John chapter 1. And that's what you're going to read. That's 1 John chapter 1 starting at verse 5, 5, 6, and 7. It's on page 1021 in your pew Bibles. 1 John is easy to find because it's two books before 3 John. All right? 1021 is your pages. You're going to be looking at 1 John, or excuse me, at, uh, at the Gospel of John. I lied to you earlier. Remember what I said about lies and the truth? See? I proved my point. The New Testament is obviously true. John chapter 1, and you're going to be looking at John chapter 3. Okay. John chapter 1. Let's hear first. First, John chapter 1, verses 5, 6, and 7. Please read for us. That was beautiful reading. That was almost like the Lutheran choir, but a little better. That was like a Baptist choir. That was fantastic. Thank you. All together now. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This is John's point. From the beginning he had started that letter. Uh, That which we've seen with our eyes, that which we touched with our hands, what we've heard, this is what we proclaim to you. God is light in him. There is no darkness at all. Those are the only options, light and darkness. He's not just kind of light. He's not just in the shade. He's not in the spectrum. He is the light. And this is the same John who's consistent with that. He had written this letter after he'd written this gospel. And so we hear the same kind of language coming out in the apostle that he had already written to define who God is in Christ. And this is John chapter 1. And so this uh, uh, side of our Uh, little congregation here. John chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Go on 1 to 5, starting with in the beginning. Read for us, please. Thank you. Not only is God light, but the Word of God, and in your translations, I bet you, you have a capital W there. That's because your editor put that capital W in because he understands something about John. That John's making an argument that Jesus Christ is God on earth, that the Son of God is uh, the, the one that you see the Father through. You've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says. As long as I'm in the world, says Jesus, I am the light of the world. And so when John is talking about the word, he's not just talking about ink on a page. He's not just talking about something that goes into your ear holes from somebody else's mouth hole. All right? That sounds a little gross. Sorry about that. We're talking about words, voices, right? We're not just talking about the words on the page of the Bible. We're talking about not a what, but we're talking about a who, and that is Jesus Christ, the light of the world. In him was life, and this life was the light of men. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Jesus is the light. Who is the life of men? Jesus is the light of the world. And how does he prove that? These dualities. No spectrum here. No in-between. No fuzzy, blurry area between light and darkness. No. Jesus says it's either one or the other. A dualism that is resolved only in the blood and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's John chapter 3. This is uh, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, explaining what salvation's all about, not being born from your mother's womb once again, but being born of the Spirit, just like Moses lifted a snake on a pole and so gave life. So also Jesus came into the world for a reason. Please read for us. This is verses 16 to 21 of John chapter 3. Jesus, the light of the world. It starts out with John 3.16. Anybody know that one? You know that one? If, if you have anything memorized from the Bible, it's probably, well, Jesus wept, because that's an easy one, right? John, that's John 11.35. But then this one. Everybody knows this one. And if you don't know this one, I want to encourage you, study it. Think about it. Put it in your head. When I talk to my New Testament students, I say, underline this. It'll be on the exam, right? It's not just extra credit. This, this is the stuff right here. John 3.16 To verse 21, please read for us. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God because there is no other option. It's in Christ, the one who was lifted up for the sins of the world, the one who in glorious resurrection sheds that light on all. This is where the works that those who are born of the light do, in the light. That God is light and not darkness is not some kind of abstract dualism that John's talking about. What makes this dichotomy between light and darkness concrete for us, practical, real for us, is the actual, real, concrete, practical history of God breaking into time and space for you and me and for the entire world. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. And that light, that word, became flesh made his dwelling among us. Light and darkness have to do with God actually breaking into time and space to come into the world, and it renders judgment on the world. But God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The verdict is that light has come into the world. Are you born of the light? Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, but Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When Jesus talks about light and darkness in this brief section, 1 John of the Gospel of John and I would suppose also Matthew chapter 5. The Gospel writers are referring to truth and lies. To life and and death, not just some kind of literary image, but the most important thing we can ever think about. How do we stack up to God's commands? How do we stack up in a new, topsy-turvy kind of kingdom that God has sent, delivered to us in Christ? Closing the loop for us in thinking about the light of the world begins, dear friends in Christ, with humility, not jumping to the rah-rah of me being a lamp on a hill or me being a city on a hill, me being a chemically impossible salt compound or me being the fulfillment of the law. It begins in humility, recognizing that in the New Testament we have no spectrum of sanctification, that I can be more or less holy, no pats on the back for trying here. Closing the loop begins with first things, recognizing that before God in Christ, all else is darkness. But this is why he's the only one who in the beginning was able to say, let there be light. Closing the loop leads from that humility to a joy. A joy that only comes when we hear in his let there be light a message for you, for you. For you are the gospel words. That Jesus died is no good news unless it's for you. That Jesus rose again is no good news. It's just history until it's for you on your behalf. And that Jesus says you were the light of the world is no good news unless he delivers that for you with his let there be light. This is more than just a word of creation. It's a call. It's a vocation, a crying, and a pleading to you to come out of the darkness of the world, to come out of the darkness of this temporal kingdom, and to be transplanted in the light of his eternal kingdom. Where the last don't stay last. Where the first are the last and the last are the first. Where the greatest are the least and the least are the greatest. In this kingdom where he has come as light to call you the least, the last, and the lost, let there be light. Dear friends in Christ, that's for you. You are that light. There's good news there. You are that light. But we have to talk about that next week. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that in your Son's glorious death and resurrection, you have brought light to the world, the light of a new and everlasting kingdom. And we thank you humbly that you draw us and call us to that kingdom as citizens to proclaim the excellencies of you who has brought us into your glorious light. Bless us this day and throughout the weeks to come as we reflect the light that you have shown in Jesus our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.